Take your Bibles with you this evening to Exodus chapter number 20. Exodus chapter number 20. As you're turning there, I'll briefly remind you of something we established last week as we considered the first commandment from Exodus chapter 20. We are not under the law in the New Testament age. We are under grace. But what we established last week is that though we are not under law and we are under, the gra- under grace, uh, that does not mean that there is no standard of righteousness that we are, we are to live by. Uh, that, that does not mean that there is no expectation of holiness uh, that is expected of us in our life. The focus of the Old Covenant, the law in the Old Covenant, is conformity to a set of rules. But when we come to the New Testament, Jesus takes the law and He applies it deeper. He elevates the law. He applies it deeper to the heart of man. And so as we consider the Ten Commandments in this short study, we're not asking the question, are we, are we, are we conforming to a set of rules and regulations? We're applying the law deeper. We're getting to the principle of the matter. And we're asking ourselves the question, is our heart right with God? So keep that in mind as we consider tonight the second commandment and wrong worship. We'll begin reading in verse number 4. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, thy Lord, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. If there is a commandment that we are most confident in our keeping of it, it is probably the second commandment. Now, when we get into some of the later commandments, uh, I hope that we have not broken them in the letter of the law. But we're smart enough to know what the spirit of the law is, especially where Jesus gives us the spirit of the law in Matthew. And so when we consider the second commandment, it's a little bit trickier than the rest of the commandments. It seems to be less relevant to us. It seems uh, what is prohibited here seems to be something that is less tempting to us. What is prohibited here in the second commandment is is very clear. We are not to use images in our worship of God. And equally clear is that we do not use images or icons in our worship of God. And so we wonder, why this commandment? Why can't we just celebrate our keeping of the commandment and move on? But I think we should slow down in our self-celebration of our keeping of the second commandment because... Uh, Consider this, the second commandment is the most oft-repeated commandment of all ten commandments. That fact alone should give us reason to slow down and ponder this commandment. Because apparently God thought that this was something, that what He prohibited in the second commandment was something that His people had a predisposition to, using idols and images in their worship of God. In fact, look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 4 to see... Uh, the emphasis that Moses and God places upon this second commandment. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, in this passage, Moses is reminding Israel of what took place at Horeb, which is Mount Sinai. So he's telling them, he's reminding them of what took place here in Exodus 19, 20, and in the subsequent chapters. We see in verse 15 of Deuteronomy chapter 4, 
Moses speaking to the people, Take ye therefore good heed unto yourselves, for ye saw no manner of similitude on the day that the Lord spake unto you in Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest ye corrupt yourselves and make you a graven image, the similitude of any figure, the likeness of male or female. Skip down to verse 23. Take heed unto yourselves, lest ye forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make you a graven image or the likeness of anything which the Lord thy God hath forbidden thee. Again, verse 25. When thou shalt shalt beget children and children's children, and ye shall have remained long in the land, and shall corrupt yourselves, and make a graven image or the likeness of anything, and shall do evil in the sight of the Lord thy God to provoke him to anger. I, I think it's pretty pretty clear. It's crystal clear what Moses is specifically worried about with the children of Israel. It is their violation of the second commandment that they fall prey to uh, the temptation that is prohibited here in the second commandment. Now I know what some of you are thinking. Well, that was them. This is us. That was then. This is now. We're more sophisticated. We're more modern than the children of Israel were. We know better. But I think we ought to be careful in making that assumption Uh, because really people are a lot alike. And whether it is an ancient civilization or whether it is a modern civilization, I think the principle of the second commandment is something that we can apply to our own lives. There are some even today that clearly violate this commandment by making a physical image to worship God by. But there are others who violate this command by imagining a God that is different than how he reveals himself in his word. And this is the temptation that we have to guard ourselves against. We're not going to bow down to some idol uh, to worship it as though it were God. But we can imagine a God who, who approves of our lifestyle. Imagine a God that is different than the one that is revealed in the word of God. And what we find is that man is made to worship. We will worship. And sometimes we may worship the true God, the one that the Bible reveals. or We may worship a different God. If we do not worship the true God, we will go down an alternative path of worship. We will, we will find something or someone to worship. Idolatry is hereditary. If we do not worship the true God of the Bible, we will worship some other false image of God. And this is, in fact, why the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments prohibit idolatry. It is because idolatry is something that is intrinsic in the sinful human nature. But the question comes up a lot of times, what is the difference between the first and the second commandment? In certain religious sects, such as uh, Catholicism or, I believe, Lutheranism, they actually take the first and the second commandment and they, they combine them into just one, the first commandment. And then they take the tenth commandment and divide that into two commandments to get, to get to ten. But I think that that combination of the first and the second commandment misses the point entirely of what is prohibited in the second commandment. The first commandment is a prohibition of worshiping the wrong God. The second commandment is a prohibition of worshiping the right God the wrong way. The question that is implied in the first commandment is, who will we worship? The question that is implied in the second commandment is, how will we worship the true God? And it is right after the events that are found in Exodus 20 where we see the children of Israel most notably breaking the second commandment. And sometimes we confuse 
the making of the golden calf as a violation of the first commandment. It is not primarily a violation of the first commandment. It is a violation of the second commandment. In fact, turn with me to Exodus 32 where we see in Exodus 32 the children of Israel request of Aaron that they build a or that they make a golden calf. And we begin our reading in verse number 1. We'll read down to verse 5. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what has become of him. And Aaron said unto them, Break off the golden earrings which are in, thy, in the ears of your wives, of your sons, and of your daughters, and bring them unto me. And all the people break off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them unto Aaron. And he received them at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool. And he had made it a molten cap. And they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Verse 5, And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Note that Lord is all capitalized. He identifies who specifically he is talking about. Verse 4, Aaron says, This golden calf is the God, these are the gods that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now they were not, they were not complete idiots. They knew who it was that delivered them from, the bond, from bondage from Israel. And in verse 5, Aaron identifies who it was that brought them up out of the land of Egypt, and he identified him as Jehovah God, in all caps, uh, Jehovah. This is, this is God that they are trying to represent, that they are trying to worship. So note, in Exodus 32, the children of Israel are not worshiping a false God in violation of the first commandment, the, but they are worshiping the true God in the wrong way. They are saying, this golden calf is your God. So what we find is that when you break the first commandment, you deceive yourself into thinking that another God can satisfy. When you break the first commandment, you deceive yourself into thinking that another God exists. When you break the second commandment, you deceive yourself into thinking that you are worshiping the true God. When you break the second commandment, you are deceiving yourself into thinking that a different version of God exists. But hear me on this, that when you worship God in the wrong way, you are actually worshiping a false God. In Exodus 32, as the children of Israel were looking at that golden calf that they had just made, and they were saying, this is the God that delivered us from Egypt, and this is Jehovah God... That was not Jehovah God. God is not a golden calf. And so even in their violation of the second commandment, they were worshiping a false God. And when you and I worship a God, when we worship a God of our own making, when we worship a God of our own imagination, we may call Him God. We may say He has a Son, Jesus. We may, call, we may refer to Him as a trinity. But know this... That is not God. We are not worshiping the true God, but a God of our imagination. Now, before we jump into the text, into our outline as we consider this passage, I want to make one final note of clarification. What is it that is precisely being prohibited in the second commandment? If we look at just verse number 4, in, again in Exodus 20, 
If we read only verse number 4, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And we just stop our reading there. That actually leads us to a prohibition of uh, any kind of artistic work, generally speaking. And if that is the prohibition, that is a very problematic prohibition. Because in just a few chapters, in Exodus 25 as an example, God instructs Moses to make two cherubims of gold to sit over top of the Ark of the Covenant. And a cherubim is, uh, as it is referred to here in verse number 4, a, a, a likeness of, of anything that is in heaven above. A cherubim is in heaven. That is, if, if, that is the, if that is the prohibition here in the second commandment, then, that, then God himself disregards the second commandment very shortly thereafter. So it's not that artwork or skillful artwork is prohibited by the second commandment. But the key to understanding the second commandment is found in verse number 5, where it says, Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. It is that that is the prohibition. There is to be no use of icons or idols or images in the worship of God. Not in the worship of a false god and certainly not in the worship of the true God either. Worship is to be of God and God alone. Not to be of a representative of God. Not to be of a servant of God. But worship is reserved for God and God alone. Now with that in mind, I want us to consider three observations about idol making from the second commandment. First of all, I want you to consider the deceptive nature of idol making. The deceptive nature of idol making. Now when we read this prohibition, that we are not to make anything in our attempt to worship God. Now again, we're not saying that this is an attempt to worship a false God. We're talking about the worship of the true God. The worship of the true God. And we will read this prohibition about not making images to represent God, to not make images in our worship of God. Uh, the question kind of pops up, why is this such a big deal? It's, it's a little bit more difficult to see the logic behind the second commandment than the first commandment or any of the other commandments for, for that matter. And why is it so wrong to use an image to represent God if we, are if we are trying to represent the true God, if we're trying to worship the true God. And the deceptive nature of, the second, of what is prohibited in the second commandment is that what is prohibited begins with good intentions. It is the intention to worship the one true God. And wanting to worship God is a good thing. That's a good thing. That's something that we should all want. And so the question that some would even ask is, as long as you have the right thoughts and you have the right feelings about God, what's so wrong about worshiping Him the wrong way? Now you see where, where, where we're going with that. And that sounds kind of good. It sounds kind of fine. But it is not how God thinks about this issue. Uh, God is very clear about this issue that worship cannot be done in the wrong way. So what is wrong? Specifically, what is wrong about idol making? Well, let me suggest to you that it mis misrepresents God. In fact, that's what's primarily wrong about idol making is that it misrepresents God. And we really could spend the rest of our time this evening considering the ways in which idol making misrepresents God. We're not going to. We're just going to consider a sampling of ways in which 
idol making misrepresents God. Consider on your own time uh, the multitude of ways in which an idol misrepresents the eternal, omnipotent, omnipresent God of the universe. Uh, we really could spend all night considering that. But, but what I want you to see, first of all, we may consider one or two of these. But when we worship an idol, when we use an idol to worship God, we are suggesting that he cannot personally receive our worship. We are suggesting, we are implying that he is either not a personal God or that he is not near enough to us to receive our worship personally. If we have to worship God through an idol, then God must not be personally near us. Because if he was, he could receive our worship personally. But as you know, God is near us. And God is a personal being. And he hears our worship. He delights in our worship. He receives our worship. And you know, when some people read the second commandment, that we are not to make any image of God... They think that what God is guarding against in the second commandment is that we not think that he is a piece of wood or that he is some stone. But that's not at all what, is, what God is guarding against because no one thinks that God is a piece of wood or a stone. Nobody thinks that. Uh, but what is, what is being guarded against in this prohibition is that God is uninvolved, that he is removed from his creation. Now let me illustrate this this way. Can you imagine if there was a husband here that in the presence of his wife had pictures of his wife and loved those pictures, kissed those pictures, hugged those pictures, showed those pictures to other people, spoke kindly about about his wife to other people as he showed those pictures to other people. And yet he never spoke to his wife. And yet he never kissed his wife and he never hugged his wife personally. Well, we would think that's idiotic. And no woman here would receive that as a display of love. It's not good enough. And when we attempt to worship God in this same way, we are suggesting that he is not near us or he is not personal to receive our worship. One of the glories of coming to church is that we worship God here. He is here with us. In fact, right now, the Lord God is in our presence. We can worship Him in our heart and in our spirit. That is the difference between a dead religion and a living religion. We do not worship some icon that is dead. We don't worship an image that is dead, but we worship the living God who is a, who is a spirit. And this is, the, this is the difference. This is the difference between worshiping God and worshiping an idol. But there's another suggestion about God. Again, considering the deceptiveness, the deception of idol making. It suggests that we are the creator and that he is our creation. The command begins, thou shalt not make. And we as humans make. We make all kinds of things. And then we admire what we make. You see, your child goes to the beach and he makes a sandcastle. And then he shows everybody around that sandcastle that he made. It's in us. We make things. And then we admire those those things. But the second commandment is a warning to us of our own desire to control, to make and to manipulate and to control. And while we can dictate and control a lot of our environment, we cannot dictate our God. We can manipulate a lot of things, but we must not manipulate our God. 
And the idiocy of idol making is, it is, it is blatantly obvious. As the maker of the idol sits before his rock as he begins to chisel away, he asks the questions, uh, what shall I make his nose look like? Shall he be a he or a she? Uh, how tall shall he be? Questions like these that are silly because you can't decide that about God. You don't get to manipulate God. You don't get to dictate who God is. And this, by the way, is exactly what the skeptics think that Christianity is all about in the first place. They think that God is the making of our imagination, that He is the formation of our imagination, that He is whatever we want Him to be, a fabrication of our minds. And sadly, for many who claim to be Christians, this is actually true. That the God that they worship, the God that they love, the God that they serve is not God at all. He is, a, he is a fabrication of their imagination. And we must be careful because we may fall susceptible to this exact sin as well. We see it a lot in our culture. How many times have you heard the statement, well, my God is a God of love and he wouldn't send anyone to hell. That is a fabrication of your imagination. That is not the God of the Bible. He reveals himself as one who has and will send many to hell. He is an image. The God that they have decided they believe in is a figment of their imagination. And in our culture where the remnant of Christian influence is still present, we really see this misrepresentation of God uh, prominently in our Christendom and Christianity. How many times have we seen the TV preacher preaching to thousands, peddling the lie, peddling the misrepresentation that God is a God who will make all your dreams come true? Have we not, have we not heard the popular retort that God only cares if you are, in, are sincere? It doesn't matter if you believe in Jesus as the only way. Where did they get these ideas from? Well, I can tell you they did not get these ideas from the Word of God because the Word of God does not reveal God in that way. He is The God that they worship is a figment of their imagination. But let us be careful too because even in our worship of God, even in our service and obedience and love of God, we can fall prey to imagining God as different than, he, than how He reveals Himself in His Word. Most of us would not say the words, well, God told me, because oftentimes when God tells me, it is an affirmation of whatever I wanted to do before He told me. But what we will do is we will imagine a God who accepts our justification for a lack of church faithfulness. And what we will do is imagine a God who sympathizes with our bitterness. And what we will do is imagine a God who approves of our gossip. And we'll imagine a God who understands our worry. And when we do this, we are committing the same sin that they commit when they say that God will not send, uh, send people to hell. We are worshiping a figment of the imagination. That is not how God reveals Himself in His Word. We are making a God after our own image, after our own imagination, after our own fashioning, rather than submitting to the God of the Bible. So what are the deceptions of idol-making? It misrepresents God. It reverses the role of creator and creation. But I want you to consider this as well. Is it, it focuses on sight, not on hearing. God is heard, not seen. Idols are seen, 
not heard. And in the context of Exodus 20, this is emphatically highlighted. When God comes down onto Mount Sinai, He is not seen. Now, there is, a, there is a dramatic scene around the presence of God, but He is not seen, but He is heard. Again, in verse 1, God spake all these words, saying, They heard the words of God that day. And again, look with me back at Deuteronomy chapter 4 very briefly. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, as Moses is reciting this scene, reminding them of what took place in Exodus 20, and Exodus 19, excuse me. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 12, <clears throat> notice the emphasis that, that Moses places on this here. The Lord spake unto you out of the midst of the fire. Ye heard the voice of the words, but saw no similitude, only ye heard a voice. Uh, verse, verse 15. Take ye therefore good heed unto yourselves, for ye saw no manner of similitude on the day that the Lord spake unto you in Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Moses is emphatic about this. You did not see God, you only heard God. Now why, why is this such a big deal? Why does God reveal Himself to us through word and not through image? Well, let's think about it for just, just a second, if, if you will. Uh, and, and specifically think about this, the differences between sight and and hearing. It was when Eve saw the fruit that she judged and evaluated the fruit to be worth it. It was only when she saw it and looked at it that she decided to take it. And the Bible says shortly thereafter that their eyes were opened. That's not a good thing. Not a good thing. It's associated with their eating of the fruit. Not a good thing. But hearing in Scripture has a close connection with obedience. It is with the eyes that we judge. It is with the eyes that we evaluate. It is with the ears that we hear, that we receive. We receive judgment. We receive, receive instruction. We receive, receive affirmation. With the ears, we do not offer instruction. We do not offer affirmation. We do not uh, offer judgment. We cannot offer judgment with, with our ears. And so God has designed it in such a way that we hear Him, not see Him. It is not we who judge Him, it is He who judges us. It is He that instructs us, it is He that affirms, affirms us. It is no surprise then in Scripture in Romans 10 that we hear, Faith cometh by hearing. It does not come by sight, it comes by hearing. It comes by hearing. And our relationship, again, I've got to emphasize this, is that our relationship with God is not that we judge Him, but that He judges us. And how does He judge us? He judges us with His Word. He instructs us with His Word. He gives us His Word, not an image, so that we can receive His instruction, so that we can receive His judgment, and so that we can conform to Him and not the other way around. Now this flies in the face of our current culture, uh, where everything is mediated through an image, not a word. Uh, the readers are a dying breed in this day and age uh, where Instagram dominates the eyeballs and where we'd rather watch the movie than read the book. Is that not the culture that we live in? And I'm not going to go down that, that rant. But, but it's something that we should be, we should be very careful of in, in, in buying into this idea that the image is better than the word. It's not. The word is better than the image. But this is something that we especially have to be careful of in our churches and in our church. Because God has ordained 
preaching, the ministry of the Word, as the primary means of truth-telling in this day and age. He did not ordain a movie. He ordained preaching. And the temptation is to add to the preaching, to de-emphasize the preaching in order to be more effective in this day and age that we live in. But no, it is preaching that is ordained as the primary means of truth-telling. And let us never de-emphasize or devalue preaching because that is God's method of truth-telling. So we see how idolatry or idol-making, rather, is deceptive. But I want you to see, second of all, that uh, I want you to see God's strong response to idol-making. In verse number 5, Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. Now Exodus 20, verse 5, is the first time that the word jealousy, or jealous, is connected with the character of God. This really introduces a new concept to God in Scripture. First time this idea is referenced in relation to God. And the word jealousy is a loaded term, especially in our modern times. It's loaded oftentimes with negative connotations. But it's really easy to get jealousy and envy confused. Envy is the idea that you have something that I want and I envy you for it. I want it. Jealousy is the flip side of that. It is something that I have that I want to keep and that I'm not going to give to you. That's the idea of jealousy. And when we think of jealousy in terms of God, okay, we've got to be careful here because God is, is not only a jealous God, but He is also a generous God. There are certain things that God does not hold back for Himself. He, he abundantly... And He abundantly blesses us with His grace and His mercy and His love. These are not things that He holds for Himself. But there are some things that God guards with a great great jealousy. For one, God is a jealous God. He is jealous of His own name and of His own glory. And when God's people make idols in in attempt to represent Him in their worship... What they are essentially doing is robbing him of his glory and they are dragging his great name through the mud. And what God is saying here in Exodus 20 verse 5 is that I'm not going to allow you to rob me of my glory, to rob me of my great name. I'm not going to let you drag my name through the mud. And when we imagine a God that is anything different than what the word of God reveals, we are robbing him from his glory. We are adding to the attributes that we suppose He has, or we are taking away from the perfections that we suppose He has. So so jealousy, jealousy. Not only is God jealous of His own name and of His own glory, but we see that, that God is jealous of His new bride. And in fact, I think that's why the word jealousy comes up here in Exodus 20. Because in Exodus 19, reminder from last week, there is, a, there is a new relationship that Israel enters into with God. And metaphorically speaking, it is of a bridegroom and a bride. So God here in Exodus 20, in Exodus 19, is adding a bride. He is, he is adding to himself a new bride in the children of Israel. And this, of course, is, we're, no, we're no stranger to this type of language in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 54 Uh, The Lord says, For thy maker is thine husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. And God is jealous for his bride. 
And jealousy in the terms of this relationship is a good thing. Now, we're not talking about that paranoid husband who won't let his wife have any friends, won't let his wife do anything. That's not what we're talking about. That is totally out of bounds here. But the idea is that God jealously guards his bride. Let me see if I can illustrate it this way. If you mess with my wife, let me tell you, you have got some trouble coming your way. Now, I may not be able to look like I can do much, but don't, don't, don't mess with my wife and find out. And I'll do it in Jesus' name too. That's the idea of Exodus 20. The Lord has a new bride, and He is not going to let anybody or anything else mess with His new bride. But the tragedy is that Israel herself forsook God for other gods. This is what God says in Jeremiah 3.20. Surely as a wife treacherously departeth from her husband, so have ye dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, saith the Lord. In Ezekiel 16.30, listen to the language here that the Lord uses. How weak is thine heart, saith the Lord God, seeing thou doest all these things, the work of an imperious or an imperious whorish woman. That's pretty, that's pretty severe, pretty extreme language that the Lord uses to describe Israel. It's not kind. It's not, it's not meant to, to be kind. Uh, their behavior does not deserve or justify kindness. Consider the book of Hosea. The book of Hosea is dedicated to the Lord's relationship with Israel in this way. The Lord tells Hosea to go marry a harlot in order to act out what Israel has done to him. They have betrayed him in the way that a spouse betrays her spouse. Now the question is, is why does God equate idolatry and infidelity? In my mind, these two things, they, they don't necessarily seem to be the same thing. But over and over again, the comparison between idolatry and infidelity is made over and over again in Scripture. And why is that? And I think it's because this. When we go after another God, when we make another God after our own image, what we are fundamentally suggesting is that God is not enough. That God cannot satisfy my needs. That He cannot satisfy my wants. And what we are suggesting is that I want to try something a little different than, than God. But let me remind you that the problem is not God. The problem is us. Because if we would obey Him, if we would love Him and serve Him with our whole hearts, we would find Him to be wholly satisfactory. Uh, we would find Him to meet our every need and our, our, and our every want. But not only do we see that God equates uh, idolatry, idol making with adultery, but we also see that He equates it with hatred as well. Look with me again at verse 5, again in Exodus 20. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Now we'll deal with the tricky part here in just a moment. But for now I want you to see that what God says is that those that worship idols, that use idols in the worship of me, are declaring that they hate me. Now it may not feel like it. It may not feel, we may not have the intentions of saying that we hate God when we imagine a God after our own imagination, but that is exactly what God says. Right, right. 
that we are declaring our hatred against God. This is not something that God thinks is funny. This is not something that God thinks is cute. But this is something that God says is a defiant and open rebellion against me. I want you to see finally tonight the unforeseen consequences of idol making in verses 5 and 6. Again, the, the phrase we just read, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Now, what, what this is not suggesting is that God judges children for the sin of their fathers. It is clear from other scriptures that God doesn't do that, that every man and every woman will be judged for his or her own sin and not for the sins of another. But I, what I believe that Exodus 20 is, is honing in on is, is the influence and the consequences of a father's sins being passed down from generation to generation. You think about a father who hates God. It is more likely that his children hate God as well. You think about a father who has a drinking problem, who is a drunkard. Ironically, it is more likely that his children also have a drinking problem as well. And you think about a father who misrepresents God. It is more likely that his children also misrepresent God. This is not to suggest that children cannot overcome their upbringing. They can, by the grace of God. But it is still difficult. It is still difficult. And it is unlikely, probabilistically speaking. But not only in pattern do we see that children follow the pattern of their fathers in sinfulness, but the whole family lives with the consequences of a father's sin. If a father drives under the influences and, and kills someone in his drunkenness, he's going to go to jail. And the whole family is going to suffer for him being in jail. The family suffers the consequences of the father's action. And so it is in sin that the children suffer the consequences of a father's sins. And the best picture of, of this, I believe, is of Israel's kings, specifically the divided nation of Israel. So after Solomon is off the scene and Israel and Judah are divided. There were 19 kings in Israel's history. Not a one of them was a good king. All 19 of them were evil. Many of them were a, a lineage-type deal. It was a heritage. It was, the throne was passed down to the son, and then the son was killed, and then the guy who killed the son would pass down the throne to his son, and on and on we go. But in every single one of those cases, you see a father who commits a sin, and then his son commits the same sins. And very oftentimes, not only do we, do we see the sons committing the same sins, but we see them committing them in an even more egregious manner. And so it is in life that if you misrepresent God, you better be careful because so will your children. And they may do so in a more egregious way than you ever thought was possible. So let me conclude with this. We must be careful not to misrepresent God. That is the principle of the second commandment. We do not fashion God after our own image, but we conform our lives. We conform our hearts to the Word of God. We do not refine, redefine God according to our wishes or to make Him more palatable to, to our lifestyles, but we simply recognize who He is as being revealed from His Word and we submit to Him. And that's the second point of application, that we cling to the Word of God, that we submit to the Word of God. Uh, that is where we find out who He is. 
That is where we find out what He wants from us. So we do not deviate from the Word of God, but we cling to the Word of God. We rely on the Word of God. We are people of the book. And let us finally consider this. Jesus is the fulfillment of the second commandment. Because Jesus, in Colossians 1, is called the image of God. So in Jesus, we see the invisible God become flesh. In Jesus, we see the express image of His person. We see the, uh, the, 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 all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In Jesus, it is, we, it is Him we see the brightness of the glory of God. And in the new covenant, we have one icon. That is Jesus. But do you see Jesus? He's not here. We do not have images of Jesus even in the new covenant. Though he was here, he is gone. And we must live by faith. But we look forward to the day when our faith will be made sight. And we will see Jesus at last. In the words of the wonderful song, What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see.